0: If you have a Bible this morning, please open it to James 4. Back in 2005, I started taking flying lessons out at Harry Brown Airport in Saginaw. Jenny and I were newlyweds living in Saginaw at the time, and I felt called to serve God on the mission field as a pilot and an aircraft mechanic. A few lessons in, my flight instructor asked me if I had joined the AOPA yet. I had to admit I had no idea what that was. I soon found out AOPA stands for the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Eager as I was at the time to be associated with all things aviation, I I quickly hopped on their website and and signed up. And it turns out it was as easy as providing them with my name and my address and my credit card information so they could collect their annual membership fee from me. In return, they would mail me a magazine every month and a, a lapel pin every few years to commemorate my joining. After logging about 15 hours of flight time in the Tri-Cities, Jenny and I moved to Arizona so that I could attend a flight school there and earn my commercial pilot's license and my aircraft mechanic's license. We were in Arizona for a little over three years, and I, I maintained my, my AOPA membership during that time. After we left Arizona, though, it became increasingly clear that God had plans for us other than the mission field. And when I finally admitted to myself that aviation was not going to be my vocation, I decided to end my membership with the AOPA. I was no longer a pilot, and I certainly couldn't afford to be an aircraft owner, so I didn't see much point in continuing to be a member of the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. But here's the thing, I could have been, I could have stayed a member, because you aren't required to be either of the things mentioned in the name of the organization to be a member of the organization. They frankly don't care whether you spend your time doing the things a pilot does as long as you pay your annual membership fee. In our passage of scripture this morning, James is going to have some harsh words for his readers because they were attempting to do this very thing. They had professed to be believers in Christ, but they were not living their lives in a manner consistent with their profession of faith. And unlike non-pilots belonging to the AOPA, this was never going to be okay with God. It's been a little while since Pastor Richard took us through James 2, but you'll hopefully recall that James spends the latter half of that chapter making his case that uh, faith apart from works is dead. It makes sense, then, that he would spend the rest of that letter, this letter, fleshing that out in practical reality by pointing out to his readers specific areas where they were just not living out their faith. As we read chapter 4 in just a moment, we're going to see James address three different areas of failure that his readers are guilty of we're gonna see that in each of those three areas, James offers humility as the corrective. Let's read James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The first point we see in verses 1 through 10 is that humility is the corrective for an adulterous heart. Humility is the corrective for an adulterous heart. James really comes out swinging in this chapter. In verse two, he accuses his readers of murder. In verse four, he calls them adulteresses, which is the literal translation of the Greek there. He also calls them enemies of God. In reading this, we might be tempted to, to cringe a little and then to quickly move on in hopes of finding rosier language further on in the letter. But we need to slow down and see just what James is accusing his readers of. In verse one, James tells the recipients of his letter that their passions at war within them are causing them to quarrel and fight among themselves to such a degree that he metaphorically throws out the word murder. The Greek word translated passions in this verse is the same word that we get the term hedonism from. If that's not a familiar word for you, hedonism is the, the philosophy that pleasure, in the sense of satisfaction of desires, is the highest aim in life. You live for your pleasures. Now, if hedonism is a term you've heard before, it may be because you've read some of John Piper's books. In his extremely well-known work Desiring God, Piper calls himself an adherent of Christian hedonism, and he suggests an update to question one of the Westminster Catechism. Question one asks, what is the chief end of man? I'm sure many of you could answer that word for word. The Catechism's answer, obviously, is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Piper suggests the updated answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Piper spends the bulk of desiring God in explaining what he means by this, and he makes the assertion that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. My goal here isn't to give you an oral book report of desiring God, but to point out that pleasure in itself is not sin. Piper's idea is that we can rightly and truly seek pleasure in God is just a rehash of what we find in Scripture. Psalm 1611 tells us, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Proverbs 1023 tells us, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. In Jeremiah 2.7, God tells the Israelites, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is certainly not against us experiencing and even desiring pleasure, as long as the experience of that pleasure is in accord with his will, and it does not itself become a God to us. 1 Corinthians 10.31 commands us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We cannot glorify God by desiring or pursuing pleasures that he forbids in his word. The thief may derive great pleasure from stealing, but God's word forbids stealing, so it cannot be done for his glory. And we cannot glorify God by giving to pleasure or to desires the place in our hearts and affections that rightly belong to God. I can't speak for any of the rest of you, but there are times when I am absolutely guilty of this. After a stressful day at work and a hectic evening at home, after the boys are in bed for the night, I finally have... A little bit of time to do what I want to do. My work's done, the house is quiet, there's no distractions. It would be a great time to pray and to read scripture. Too often though, I choose to turn on Netflix instead. Spending time with God seems like it would take an effort, whereas watching Star Trek would be so much easier and more enjoyable. In those moments, pleasure in the form of entertainment has taken God's place in my affections. The USS Enterprise has become an idol to me. There is, this, is, this is nothing short of spiritual adultery. And it is what's happening in the house churches that James is writing to. Granted, they're not watching Star Trek. It's not on ancient Netflix. But they're making their desires for pleasure into their gods to such an extent that they're fighting and causing divisions among themselves as a result. And James rightly calls them adulteresses in verse 4. Just prior to that, in verses 2 and 3, James lists two more symptoms of the problem. He says they don't have because they don't ask, which is prayerlessness. And then he says they ask and don't receive because they ask with wrong motives, which is either ignorance of or an outright rejection of God's will. So they're either not asking God for things at all, or else they're asking for things to satisfy their desires rather than to glorify God. Both are sinful. James goes on in verse 4 and says basically, look, you're so in love with your worldly pleasures that you've made yourselves enemies of God. We see this over and over in the Old Testament, right? The Israelites pledge fidelity to God and then they they turn away to other gods at every opportunity to the point that you get to feeling like a a forehead slap is the the proper response to reading the Old Testament sometimes. In verse 5, James gives us Sort of a summary of the entire Old Testament rather than a direct quote from a portion of scripture when he says he yearns Jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us James then in verse 6 quotes Proverbs three thirty-four: God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble as a segue to the corrective for their spiritual adultery Then in verses 7 through 10 he fires off ten commands The last of which is humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you Because he bookends this list of commands with the concept of humility first in verse 6 and then again in verse 10 It's plain that James intends the first nine commands here to show what humility before the Lord looks like The first command is submit yourselves therefore to God Submit is a bit of a dirty word in our society and it's one that scripture doesn't shy away from using For fans of wrestling, either real or professional, the word might cause you to think of submission holds, where the victim of the hold yields to the one putting them in the hold, and they tap out. In doing this, they acknowledge the superior strength or skill of their opponent. Or the word submit might cause us to think of Paul's infamous instructions to wives in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, where he tells wives to submit to their husbands. In that case, it's not so much a matter of acknowledging any sort of superiority on the part of the husband, but in the wife recognizing the God-given role of authority that God has placed on the man's shoulders. But what does it mean to submit ourselves to God? Psalm 81 gives us a great insight. In verses 8 through 13, God says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Submitting ourselves to God then, means recognizing his sovereignty over us and yielding control of our lives to his will, which he has literally spelled out for us in Scripture. In order to do this, we need to take ourselves and our desires for pleasure off the throne of our lives. So that's the first step in humbling ourselves. And it naturally flows into James's next command. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As James's readers sought to turn from their all-consuming quest for pleasure, they would begin to resist Satan's temptations for sinful pleasures. And in doing so, they would be free to draw near to God, which is the third command here, with the reasonable expectation that God, in turn, would draw near to them. The next command James gives is to cleanse their hands, which his Jewish readers would have associated with the ritual washings and purifications that the priests would go through prior to serving before God in the temple. And James sort of bundles this with the next command, which is to purify their hearts. The author of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews 10:19 through 22. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we cleanse or purify our hearts from an evil conscience by the blood of our great high priest, Jesus. James's next four commands all sort of clump together into one idea. He tells his readers to be wretched, to mourn, to weep, and to let their laughter be turned to mourning and their joy to gloom. Now, just like the desire for pleasure, James is not saying that being happy or joyful is sin in itself. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses is spelling out the blessings that Israel will experience if they obey God, and then spelling out the curses they'll experience if they disobey God. In verses 46 through 48, he says, they shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you god expected the israelites not just to serve him but to serve him with joyfulness and gladness of heart in the new testament one of the fruits of the holy spirit listed in galatians 5 is joy So James can't be saying here that joy in itself is sinful. Cards on the table, sin is enjoyable. No one has ever said, well, I guess I'll disobey God now, even though it's going to be awful. Completely apart from how our conscience might make us feel afterwards, sin is a lot of fun in the moment. And if we've seared our conscience, that sense of fun stays with us. I attended Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids for one semester about 20 years ago. I remember on several occasions where guys from my dorm proudly boasted to me that over the weekend they'd gone to a party, and they'd gotten really, really drunk, and then they'd gotten into fist fights with equally drunk students from nearby uh, Kelvin College. That's what James is driving at here. He's not telling his readers they can never be happy or no joy again. He's telling them to change their cavalier attitude toward their own sinfulness, their own sinful desires, pursuits. Instead of being giddy over sin, be wretched. Instead of celebrating your sin and trying to find your joy in it, mourn over it and weep. And then, as we've said, James finishes these ten instructions by summarizing them. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This portion of James 4 should cause us to examine our own hearts. What place do our desires for pleasure hold there? Have we made them into idols that rob God of our devotion? Are we living for the next sports ball game? Is Netflix stealing the time we should be spending on our knees before God? Are we willing to mistreat others in the pursuit of pleasure? If so, humility is the proper corrective for an adulterous heart. My next point this morning is going to take just a, a little bit of explanation. See, Pastor Doug isn't here to hear this sermon this morning, so I've decided to use alliteration for my three points. No one tell him I did this. The keyword in each point is going to start with an A, because the, the first section of this chapter and in the, in the third section of this chapter both lend themselves really nicely to A words. The second section, though, not so much. So to get the, the keyword for the second section, I had to comb through a thesaurus, And it's not a word that I had ever heard or read before. Uh, I started prepping for this sermon. So I'll give you the next point, and then I'll spell the word for you. Humility is the corrective for an aspersive spirit. That's A-S-P-E-R-S-I-V-E. Humility is the corrective for an aspersive spirit. We see this in verses 11 and 12. There James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James's readers were bad mouthing and judging each other. Have you ever? Called out someone who claims to be a christian for some area of sin that they're refusing to deal with The favorite defense of the the person being confronted in a situation like that is You can't judge me only god can judge me And it's both funny and tragic that they don't understand what they're saying when they say this They're using god's judgment to get out of a difficult conversation with us When they should be much more afraid of god's judgment than of ours Ironically, these two verses that we just read in James 4 seem like they'd be a great proof text for these individuals. James does say, after all, that there is only one judge, and who are you to judge your neighbor? So we have to ask, is it wrong to judge others? Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 7-1, Judge not, that you be not judged. Paul says in Romans 2-1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And again in 1 Corinthians 4-5, Paul tells us, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. If we stopped there, it would seem clear that the Bible tells us not to judge. Scripture has more to say on the subject. For instance, after saying don't judge in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7:15 and 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So clearly, we're to judge prophets by their fruits to determine whether they're false. Jesus also says in John 7, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So is the Bible contradicting itself, telling us both to judge and not to judge? Of course not. Scripture does not forbid judging others, but rather what it forbids is a spirit of judgmentalism, which is critical of everyone and everything, and seeks to bring others down through censure. It's the spirit that strives to find fault with a brother or sister in Christ and then share those faults with anyone who will listen to them. I was at a barbecue last weekend. I saw so-and-so drinking a beer. I don't know why they even bother coming to church. They're clearly not Christians. Can you believe so-and-so doesn't like Trump? They must just love murdering babies. They're earning their place in hell. Oh boy, so-and-so is actually wearing a mask in public. Like, that's going to stop anyone from getting COVID. I should confront them and show them how foolish they're being. Ignorant sheep. I just saw so-and-so, and they're out in public without a mask on. I guess they don't care that they're jeopardizing everyone else's health. They might as well just go around stabbing old people. That's judgmentalism. That's what's condemned here. James says the one who does this actually judges the law. And we can understand his use of law here to refer to the law of love. When asked what was the greatest commandment in the Old Testament law, Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, because those two commands summarize the entire law. When we speak evil of our brother or sister, we are rejecting that law as though it's not worth following. That's how we judge the law, effectively putting ourselves above the law. And if we put ourselves above the law, whether we realize it or not, we're also putting ourselves above the law giver, he who is able to save and to destroy. It's pride that causes us to think we know better than our brother. It's pride that causes us to think we are better than our brother. And it's pride that causes us to turn a judgmental eye on our neighbors on our brothers and our sisters, and to speak evil of them as we pull them down to lift ourselves up. Philippians 2 3 tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The NIV renders it just a little bit differently and says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves if we truly do this, if we truly value others more than ourselves, we'll no longer be tempted to think that we're better than anyone else or to speak ill of others. Because humility is the corrective for an aspersive spirit. Finally, this morning, we see in verses 13 through 17 of James 4 that humility is the corrective for an arrogant mindset. Humility is the corrective for an arrogant mindset. James addresses this last part of chapter 4 to merchants and traders who traveled around from place to place to do their buying and selling and so to make a profit. Just like with pleasure and joy and judging, we need to understand that James is not saying it's sinful to make money or even to have a five-year plan for our chosen career path. What James is condemning here is the making of our plans without regard for the will of God. It's arrogant to lay out our five-year plan for becoming upper management in our company without carefully and earnestly seeking God's will for our lives. It may be that God has a five-year use for you right in the position you're currently in. Or it may be that God is going to end your time with your organization tomorrow through layoffs and downsizing. Or God may take you home to glory next Thursday. The point is, we just don't know. We can arrogantly pretend that we're in control of our lives, that we have the power to determine exactly what's going to happen when. But the reality is that God is sovereign over all things, including our lives and our plans. We can sort of see an illustration of this on a, on a micro-scale with parents and children. My boys, for instance, could decide tonight that they're going to eat ice cream and candy for supper and then stay up till midnight playing Minecraft. Jenny and I are in authority over their lives, over this time of their lives, though, and we know that those are horrible plans. No matter how good and how pleasing those plans might seem to Ezra and Nate, they're not a good idea. It certainly doesn't fit with our plans to put up with severely sugar-high kids half the night, and then to let them stay up till midnight, knowing that we're probably literally going to have to drag them out of bed in the morning. So we're not going to let them go through with their plans. In the same way, God is in authority over our lives and our plans, and His perfect will is going to determine exactly to what extent our plans come to pass. Scripture repeatedly declares God's sovereignty. In Ephesians 1:11, for instance, Paul says, "In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." Lamentations 3, 37 and 38 say, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So it is rank arrogance to believe that we are in control of our futures, and it is ultimately a rejection of God's rule of our lives to make our plans without seeking his will. Humility is the corrective for an arrogant mindset. Paul gives us some words of wisdom in Romans 12, 1-3 that serve as a, a concise summary of what James has said in our passage this morning. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Presenting our bodies as a sacrifice to God, and discerning the will of God, and not thinking too highly of ourselves, are all in keeping with James's instructions to humble ourselves, that we would keep ourselves far from adulterous hearts, and from aspersive spirits, and from arrogant mindsets. Oh, Father, that we might pursue, zealously pursue humility before you. Father, that it might be a defining characteristic of who we are, a a crucial part of our character, God, that we would submit to you, that we would draw near to you. Father, that we would strive to be fully obedient in all areas of our lives, to the law of love. That we would love you as we should, God. Yielding to your sovereign control of our lives. And that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, God. Father, be glorified in this as in all things. As we go out from here, God, please be at work in our hearts. That we would put pride to death. That we would seek humility. To be more closely walking in your, with your spirit, God, and in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.